Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how are you doing this evening? I'm good. I had nutritious soup for dinner. As the emperor commands. <laughs> I am... As well as can be expected, considering uh, there's been construction going on at my house, so my dog has not stopped barking for about 48 solid hours. Oh, Oh, no. Tonight, we're going to be covering two episodes. These are episodes six and seven of season two, A Spider in the Web and Soulmates. Um, I believe, Anna, you have our first episode. Take it away. So this is episode six of season two titled A Spider in the Web, written by Larry Dottilio and directed by Kevin G. Kremen. And I hope that I pronounced that correctly, but probably didn't. So this week's B5 newcomer is Taro Asoki, an old friend of Talia Winters who's here on the station to negotiate with Amanda Carter, a representative of the Mars colony government. He has a proposal to work toward Mars independence without bloodshed, Uh, And Talia agrees to oversee the negotiations on his behalf in her role as B5 commercial telepath. Talia's not the only one who knows about the negotiations, though. And Sheridan gets a call from an Earth senator who's definitely neither Mallory Archer nor Lucille Bluth. And she claims that Asoki is here to back another Mars rebellion and wants Sheridan to meddle and prevent this. We're also introduced to a new mystery visitor who arrives via a shipping crate rather than through customs. Our first day of negotiations is fairly successful and Talia and Taro head to dinner afterward. On their way, however, they're surprised by our mystery crate man who says, free Mars, grabs Taro by the throat and electrocutes him with his weird robot hand. Talia scans him and sees something strange, a vision of being in a ship as it's blown apart. Our mystery man clearly sees the vision as well and is spooked and runs off before he can electro-choke Talia as well. Later, Talia debriefs with Sheridan and details the images she saw, saying that she doesn't understand them. What's even weirder is that he had no emotions or thoughts other than that image. Talia doesn't understand why someone from the Free Mars faction would kill Asoki since he was proposing a peaceful way forward for Mars. Further, she clarifies to Sheridan that he's been lied to about the purpose behind the meetings and tells him off for kind of being a prick. Cutting back to our weird robot dude, he puts a code into a comms terminal and receives a transmission with like a 90s hypnotism kaleidoscope effect. Uh, He proceeds to pull the skin off of his hand and stick his finger in the data crystal port. Uh, uploading video of the interaction with Taro and Talia from his point of view. He then receives orders from someone called Control to eliminate Miss Winters and continue with phase two. 
Sheridan continues to investigate, speaking with Carter and informing her of Ahsoki's death. She denies that Free Mars was responsible, since they were not informed and would have nothing to gain. Rather, someone who doesn't want Mars to gain independence. Meanwhile, as Tali is escorted by security, our mystery man strikes again, once again saying Free Mars, as he prepares to electrocute Talia. She brings up the, sp- the ship explosion memory again, and once again he flees, uh, wondering to himself, what have they done to me? Talia, once again, debriefs with Sheridan, and she got some more detail this time. Specifically, it was an Earth Alliance cruiser that fired on the ship, and she's convinced that the dude died. This is indeed confirmed by Garibaldi, who was able to pull up the dude's records based on his DNA, and it turns out he's Abel Horn, a Free Mars leader whose ship was destroyed during the, the rebellion. Meanwhile, Horn has dropped in to see Carter, claiming that he was rescued and has been on the run, that he definitely didn't kill Asogi, and that he needs to get back to Mars. He threatens that he'll reveal her past involvement with Free Mars if she doesn't help him, and then collapses in pain, uh, claiming that only Talia can help him. Carter sends a message to Talia saying that she wants to continue the negotiations, and they agree to meet. With all this new info, Sheridan has a theory. Earth apparently had a Project Lazarus experiment to make cyborgs where subjects were brought back from the brink of death, had computers implanted in their brains, and were telepathically fixated on the moments of their death to prevent rejection of the computer. Suspecting that Horn is one of these cyborgs, Sheridan starts to scan the station for the radiation signature of the computer components. Meanwhile, Talia has gone to Carter's quarters and has walked into Horn's trap. He asks her to scan him to try to make sense of the memory. She does and gets something new this time. Horn on an operating table with a psychop standing over him. Sheridan's scan finishes, tracking Horn to Carter's quarters. And he and Garibaldi swiftly realize that Talia is in danger and busts in to rescue her. Sheridan tries to defuse the situation, but is unsuccessful and fires on Horn. After Horn's death, they detect an energy surge coming from his body and evacuate the room just before it explodes, conveniently uh, obliterating all evidence. Wrapping up, Carter agrees to do her best to make Asogi's plan a reality, and the B-5 staff agree not to reveal her past involvement with Horn and Free Mars. Talia reports that she saw the image of the operation, but she does not tell Sheridan about the psychop. And that's an episode. No B plot this time. Just yeah. uh, just a lot of A plot. A pretty tight A, a plot too. Yeah. We just got this uh, pretty neat conspiracy thriller. I Yeah. This is one of those storylines where you think this is a fun throwaway little episode, you know. Just Except a, and then, but then, like, this is a classic JMS thing where he, you, he makes this this episode, and then they'll touch this episode like three more times in the future, in small and large ways, which I think is a real uh, credit to his both planning and then also his like writing that he like makes those connections back so that it feels like the whole thing is all connected. Because I'm sure he didn't plan to include everything that he does that with, but the way that he does it is really clever, and it really makes the the series feel interconnected. 
And it's it's interesting that you say that because this episode wasn't written by JMS. And I actually feel like a lot of the stuff in it is kind of disconnected from uh-huh. the rest of the show. Like we have this whole thing with Project Lazarus and Bureau 13, which like maybe is just the Psychor, but it doesn't really like there's a lot about this that they don't really come back to or make sense of. So so what it feels like here is Dottilio is taking what he has seen so far from JMS. He's like, I am going to fill in some blanks here, put some names to possible organizations that might be in the background here. And and, and then JMS saying, I don't like this. <laughs> or or yeah. I'm not going to use this. So Bureau 13, it turns out, um, was something that turns into control that we see later on in the season. Yeah, and they say, and and we do see, like, you know, they, they reference control here. But the, the whole, like, Bureau 13 and Sheridan's, like, you know, there's a spider in the web and I'm going to kill it is like yeah. very dramatic, but we never it never comes back. I mean, I think that I think we get that continued with like the conspiracy earth plot in general. Yeah. But yeah. never this specific like this specific organization. Yeah, that so that's Bureau thirteen, the name it turned out, was the name of an RPG that had been released in the mid to late eighties and nineties. Uh and they had no idea about it. So after the, sh- the episode came out, a bunch of nerds hit JMS up on the uh, on Usenet and were like, so is this like a reference to the RPG? And he's like, Jesus Christ, of course not. I've never heard of this fucking thing, nerds. And <laughs> How Larry Dottilio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As we've already discussed on the show. <laughs> As a consequence, uh, they changed the name and it turned into... So control went from being like a person who works with Bureau 13 to like an organization within Psychor is how is yeah. kind of how I understand it. And then Psychor kind of turned into Bureau 13's role where like Psychor became like this piece of this conspir this major actor in the conspiracy. It feels kind of odd. Like it, it works, but yeah, I can definitely tell that this wasn't written by jms mm-hmm. himself that it's it's not quite connected in the way that we would expect yeah. if he had written it himself yeah it's just interesting that like to go back to my original point the the way that he takes this episode and he'll connect other stuff to it in the future yeah and he does that with lots of stuff lots of episodes are like that where you'll think it's a throwaway episode and then he'll connect He'll call back to it, this to it later on. I think it's very cool. Uh, and, and so speaking speaking of references that are not at all subtle, um, we have our Martian representative Amanda Carter, who is the descendant of one of the very first colonists on Mars, who was named John, because John? there had to be a John Carter of Mars. Jeez. Yeah, yeah I, I, not just one of the first settlers flew the ship over. Yep, yep. Real subtle there, guys. Yeah, that was as subtle as getting kneecapped with a shotgun. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, uh, um, we get some, we get some, like, I, I feel like this is a good, like, if you've got to put 20 episodes in a season, like, this is a good episode that 
does that has a lot it has like a bunch of stuff going on in it that you get like to sort of like build out the earth side of this universe mm-hmm. um and like and it get, actually has talia content yeah talia actually does shit in this episode compared to 90 percent of other talia episodes which is talia is a victim of something yeah like like she's sort of a victim of something here but she's also like taking initiative and like she actually going after to solve it. <laughs> right right but i think that's also like we get uh we get like some some share we get some Sheridan lore here as well for an episode that is relatively not Sheridan focused. Yeah. Uh, like we get like Sheridan goes through a dis- a description of a first contact scenario he did with a race that was I believe primarily gaseous or at least their ship was yeah it, it's it's very it, it's like they they play they played it being like a little like vague at like the particulars but a species that is very different from humanity and it's just this cool little world building thing which like i understand why you don't see those species generally on screen is because how do you one portray that with either a muppet or bad cgi yeah and like i am 100 percent pro muppet but that's that's i like i, I know why you don't do it but yeah it, it's a lot of it, it's a it's a cool story and then we also just learned that, like, Sheridan is a man after my own heart <laughs> and likes to collect likes to collect conspiracy theories. That is how he puts it in this episode, is that he likes to collect secret projects. And then he's basically, like, a well-adjusted conspiracy theory nut, which... I love it, yeah. Honestly, big same. <laughs> yeah. It feels a lot like, uh, and this is probably because I've been watch rewatching White Collar recently, but it feels a lot like Mozzie from White Collar, but like, you know, actually socially adjusted. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that little bit of Sheridan lore. And um, Garibaldi, I think, acts like a semi-decent normal human throughout this episode. Yeah, he even apologizes to Talia for being a jackass. That'll last. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. it'll go great. Um, yeah. Um, also, props to this episode for teaching young Anna the word badinage. <laughs> I, I honestly have never heard this word outside of this episode. It's a good word. It's a yeah. good word. We should use it more often. I'm, I'm personally a big. I'm more of a fan of repartee. <laughs> and we get we get some cool stuff with free Mars here, also, or, or like with the Martian like ecosystem especially after voice in the wilderness from last season with the mars riots yeah and it's it's like this whole thing of like trying to gain independence from earth through foreign trade yeah that's something where i think that they did include the right amount of detail on the negotiations and Isoki's plan. Like, it's enough to kind of give us an inkling of what's going on without doing, like, the economics technobabble. Yeah. But that's something that I find is really fascinating to think about, that as far as I can tell, it's a plan to kind of foster long-term Mars independence by fostering economic independence, by, by creating trade relationships between Mars and other 
alien um, cultures, species, etc. So that, you know, so that it's not just, you know, breaking away with a rebellion and then being like, okay, now what? But, you know, setting up a independent economy, etc. Yeah. There's a line in this episode, however, that I have to, I have to draw back to because it's, to me at least, hilarious. I think it's Abel Horn who says, like, we won't rest until the sands of Mars run red with Earth their blood. And I just oh, want yeah. to shout, they're already red, you fucking dumbass. Well, isn't he a ro- I mean, isn't he kind of like a demented robot? I don't expect <laughs> high, pr- high pros from someone I, whose yeah, brain yeah. is half of a microwave. Like, yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, fair, fair. It's he, 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 he's he respect after being resurrected into murder bot and not, not well rounded, not even a murder bot. He's got a USB stick and a taser in one arm. He's he's basically like one of those fancy, uh, what do you call it, like 21st century Swiss Army knives that you get in the Sky Mall catalog. <laughs> I, I I also like how like they 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 just cut out entirely like that cybernetics are not really a thing uh, at least with Earth yeah, at least with Earth because we we have met what's his face the the vicar mm-hmm. yeah who's clearly cybernetic yep yeah I it, it's just like oh human brains are absolute shit with these so there's actually an extended conversation in the in the lurkers guide page for this episode about uh-huh. Vicar and um, Abel Horn. And the short version of it is people were saying, well, like, what's up with Vicar? What's up with Abel Horn? And what he, what JMS eventually like breaks it down as is like trying to integrate electronic, like sticking like a robotic arm on somebody, totally doable, not a problem. Trying to like integrate electronics with someone's brain is where it gets tricky. And that's why someone like Vicar is super rare and exceptional and special. And someone like Abel Horn is also exceptional. And that's why he's such a clusterfuck of a, of a <laughs> creation and he goes wrong. Whereas yeah. seeing other people, we'll see other small examples of cybernetics. People with like robotic limbs, I think, show up at one point, mm-hmm. and here and there, and we'll, and that's like not a big deal. It's not a thing to have somebody yeah. that like, you know, has an arm that's that's controlled, you know, that that's implanted because that's yeah. all that is is just nerve connections. It's mm-hmm. it's so integrating fiddling around the brain. Yeah, it's the brain part that gets that, that gets finicky, according to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have the first appearance. Of Zach Allen, who uh, I believe it it's, was Anna pointed out in our notes, is uh, the first B5 himbo. Yep. I I think he, like, I think he is, we'll call him simple. Uh, he is at least an ex, a somewhat nice to look at piece of man. And he at least is somewhat sweet. I, I will give this. He does join a fascist organization. He that, joins a fascist you know, organization for extra, like, baseball card money. Yes. And then so is I will, shocked I will... when they ask him to, like, actually be a fascist. Not like... And then, and then betrays so then, them. So so I will I will say that. 
that this he qualifies said, him under the Alex Summers accidental fascism uh, subclause. So I will accept him. Yeah. I will accept him. Yeah, he's for sure a himbo. We also we also start to get a little bit more on the relationship between Ivanova and Talia. Yeah. Notably, notably Susan saying that she finds Talia interesting, to which we're all like, mm-hmm, yep, interesting. Mm. Yeah, we, we know what that means. The same way I find Obi-Wan Kenobi interesting. <laughs> if, if, if you've spent any time on my Twitter account, you, you've seen me make some interesting comments about Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I love Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's sexy. And Lawrence of Arabia, not not the actor, Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> not, I should clarify, I don't find what's-his-name uh, very impressive. Um, him and, oh, what's-her-name? Wow, my brain's just really firing all cylinders. There's like six what's-its-names in, in the span of three seconds. Uh, go watch Line in Winter with, come on. With what's-their-name? Peter O'Toole. Thank you. Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn. If you if if you have not seen that movie, I swear to God, it is worth your time. The two of them are like meth-addled cats <laughs> when they are verbally sparring. It's yeah, it's so ferocious and snarky. And the cast in that, there's a young Anthony Hopkins playing Richard oh, III. Uh, what's his name? James Bond. Timothy Dalton. Yeah, Timothy Dalton. Wild. Dude, the cast is out of control good. Yeah, this is this is a loaded cast. It's it is probably it's like a top 3 film for me of all time and it has some of the best writing. I have to check it out and then we'll have to record a podcast episode about it. Absolutely. Cuz what's the point of enjoying anything if you can't record a podcast about it? Exactly. Anyway, Hey, hey, I am I am I am enjoying my Columbo episodes and I am just resorting to like one or two tweets about them. <laughs> we'll see. So this is possibly the most loaded episode we ever had for Hey I Know That Face. Oh, just wait. So first first of course we have we have Jessica Walter, who you is a TV luminary, but most modern audiences will know her as uh, Lucille Bluth, and also from my sect, I, I know her as Mallory Archer. Oh, Thanks. of course. Our our text chain came up with a lot of uh, how much? It's a Star Fury. How much can it cost? Twenty credits. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> and and honestly, the senator that she plays in this episode um, is not far off the mark. Yeah, big <laughs> Mallory Archer energy yeah, from that it, senator. That's really that's really Mallory Archer in the in just the twenty third century. Yeah, um, and sober, I guess. Well, maybe you know that. Yeah, <laughs> like, maybe have like two drinks at lunch, but like you know, it's daytime on Earth at least. Still, Taru Isoki is played by James Shigeta, who let, let's just face it, everybody's going to know him. He's Chairman Takagi from Die Hard. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which uh, like we're 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 in January here, so it's been three weeks since I last watched Die Hard. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just just fantastic. Also, lastly, Amanda Carter is played by 
uh, Adrienne Barbeau, who nerd audiences will know her from Batman the Animated Series. She was the voice of Selina Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman. That's not bad. Wait for the, the second half of this episode, though. I'm going to blow you out of the damn water. Uh-huh. All right. And we, we get we get an answer to uh, to Justin's question from yeah. last episode, oh, too. Oh, right. Yeah. JMS lived in San Diego. Uh, the question from last episode was, uh, Justin was wondering uh, whether JMS had lived in San Diego because he seemed to have a great deal of hatred for the city in nukiness. <laughs> uh, the answer is yes. He lived in San Diego from 1974 to 1981. And has extensive comments about nuking it in Lurker's Guide. Goodness. There you go. I don't think I've ever lived in a place that, like, I would consider nuking fictionally. And I've lived in Sacramento. (laughs) Yeah, but Sacramento is... (laughs) Good point. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I was going with that. Yeah. But I wouldn't ever want to fictional... Like, I've never hated a place I've lived enough to want to fictionally nuke at. Yeah, I don't know. Nuking of home cities aside, let's get on to our back half of the episode here. Jude, take it away. Uh, Episode 7, Season 2, Soulmates, uh, written by Peter David. We're going to get to this. We're going to get to this. Uh, Directed again by Kevin G. Kremen. Buckle up. You would think that in an episode that has one plot line about Centauri polygamy and another about Psychor, the odds would be decent that it was Londo's shitty patriarchal society that earned my scorn. But nope. Uh, our A-plot on Soulmates is the better of the two plots, uh, by which I mean the one with Jakar. We open on Veer practicing greetings. He's in customs waiting to meet Londo's wives, Our good time is interrupted by Garibaldi, who makes a completely predictable crude joke and looks to be lining up another when Timov, the first of said wives, shows up, scares Veer more than Morden does, and browbeats him into ditching customs, taking her directly to Londo. The ambassador in question, however, is not there because he's partying. While Timov tortures Veer in the quarters while waiting, Daguerre, wife number two, arrives, And if words were knives, this scene would look like that part of Kill Bill where Uma Thurman and Vivica Fox slice it up. On his way back to his quarters, Londo runs into Jakar and Sheridan, and his ebullient mood mystifies both of them completely. The cause of this good mood is soon revealed when he gets back to his quarters, arriving just as Timov is about to storm off. The 30th anniversary of his Day of Ascension is approaching, and on account of his rising political star, the Emperor has granted him a favor any favor that was within his power to grant. Londo has requested divorces, I roll. He gets to ditch two out of his three wives, the emperor having requested that he he keep one for official functions and so on and so forth. The other two will be cut loose with no stipend, no alimony, nothing. The third wife, Mariel, arrives while Londo is enjoying the grief his news is causing. They end up all touring the Zocalo shortly later and run into Sheridan, where Londo warns Sheridan about Mariel. He says she is drawn to powerful men like a moth drawn to flame, except the flame gets burned. This is a weird analogy. I don't know. It's fine. I'm just... It's a weird analogy. I don't know where Londo was going with that one. Charming, though. Uh, That night, Mariel and Daguerre fawn over Londo in a transparent attempt to curry favor 
going so far as to offer a three-way. T-Mov's withering scorn in this scene is truly a thing to behold. She slaps the shit out of Malari, which is one of the most satisfying things the show has ever done, and storms off. We are left to imagine if Londo gets his sexual escapades as the show cuts away before it's resolved. And the next day, Mario returns to the market, where she buys a weird toy from uh, the B-plot, which we'll talk about in a little bit, as a gift for Malari's Ascension Day party. That night at the party, it's a real affair. Everyone is barefoot and has gifts, as is tradition. So my boy Jakar rolls in, in boots, with no gift, looking so excited to be a butthole to Malari, but discovers, to his extreme consternation, that Londo is still so excited to be having divorces that he's not even offended that, that Jakar is being a jerk on purpose. He calls him my Narn friend, and Jakar could not be more frustrated with Londo's good. He retreats from the party, feigning a migraine, uh, and ditches it, which is hilarious. Londo opens Mario's gift, which is which fires two darts from its eyes, and he promptly collapses. It is apparently a Narn booby trap from a recently captured uh, Narn world. She feigns not having recognized this fact. In MedLab, Franklin takes a break from hitting on his patients and other ethical violations to apparently have absolutely no solutions whatsoever. He can't synthesize Centauri blood, and they don't keep his type on hand, and apparently he's never considered the idea that they have a large Centauri population and maybe one of them has blood. I don't know. <laughs> well, this, this is Franklin we're talking about. Right? Daguerre mentions to Timov that if he dies, they all get to keep their positions since he never announced the divorces. Timov returns to MedLab later and tells Franklin that she is Londo's blood type, and she'll donate on the condition that he never tells Londo. Franklin is befuddled, possibly because he hadn't considered asking that sizable local Centauri community to donate, or possibly because selfless acts are outside of his comprehension. One of the two. When Londo wakes up, he says he's not sure if he's in MedLab or Hell, and names his three wives Pestilence, Famine, and Death which would make him war, if we're going by the, the, the four horsemen. Daguerre and Mariel pretend to be relieved, but Timov just glares daggers at him. When they leave, Londo is trash-talking them all, and Franklin sasses Londo for being <laughs> rude, but because he is sworn to secrecy, he can't say why. The next scene is completely unnecessary, but amazing, because it is only here to show us that Jakar fucks, and his raw... Narn magnetism transcends the boundaries of politics and space and species. It shows him discussing Londo's near death with a lover who turns out to be Mariel, whom he's been laying pipe with. I need a vote here. Do we think laying pipe is the right euphemism for Narn? Yes. Uh, through the various B5 fanfic I have read, like Narn get relatively, if... Bad dragony shaped penises. So awesome. we'll say we'll say pipe is the is the appropriate plumbing terminology. Okay, but not for Centauri. I would be more no, like laying octopus, case, or like laying drain. Okay, I'm good with that too. Okay. In any case, just all over the place. They fucking. Um, he says he knows that she recognized the Narn booby trap thing for what it was, and if he figured out, then Londo probably could too. And that's it. There's no follow-up. There's no consequence to this scene. There is literally no point to this scene in the plot of this episode except to show that Jakar is nailing Londo's wife. 
<laughs> it's so good. Ordinarily, so- I want to point out, ordinarily, I would be offended by how petty this scene is. But it's Jakar, and I agree that Jakar could pull anyone he wants. And I therefore approve of this scene. And we get the chess piece, too. And we get the sexy, yeah, the sexy Narn chess piece. The scene is fantastic, and I don't, I don't care who wrote it or how petty it is and dumb it is. It's, it's amazing, and I love it. Also, Jakar's migraine resolves, and we can all be very happy for him about yes. that. Yes. Well, you know, if it works like humans, you re- release those hormones, and good to go. Uh, finally, we see Londo seeing his wives off at custom, his wife off at customs, and two other women. Veer is giving Timov a schedule of events that she may or may not wish to attend. It's clear who he has picked to retain. Londo smirkingly tells the other two he's not going to leave them totally empty-handed. He'll give them a very modest alimony uh, as they glare hatefully at him and Timov. She takes him aside and privately asks him why he picked her. And he says, actually quite tenderly, that with her, he'll always know where he stands. And she looks legitimately flattered by that honesty. Uh, He kisses her hand and they part ways. That's the end of that part of the episode. Nothing else (laughs) happens here. Nothing is happening. We don't have a B plot. Well, the C plot is... Justin is pouring pouring a drink right now. The C plot is surprisingly good. So we can talk about the C plot. B plot is hot garbage, We have to talk about the B plot, though. We've already used our two free passes this year. Yeah. Okay, I hate this plot line, so I will attempt to be brief. Let me just open up the drawer over here next to me labeled Tired Tropes I Wish B5 Would Retire Already. Yep, here we go. Filed under patriarchal horseshit, we've got female characters, nefarious X plot line. Oh, hmm, what's this? A sticky note on this on this episode. It's my handwriting, but I don't remember it. Oh, I see. It's all in caps and half the lines go through to the other side. Yeah, I wrote this in a rage blackout. That tracks. It says, see also, female character has no agency. Cool. Super cool. All right. Let's get this over with. I want to put a content warning on this section for sexual assault. Uh, So that's cool. Give you a nice uh, sense of what we're getting into here. Uh, Fast forward to 3627. If you want to skip over it. So back at the beginning, uh, when Garibaldi and Veer are in customs and Garibaldi's being a butthole, he sees this smug-looking jerk in the arrivals area put a whammy on some guy he offended without saying a word. Garibaldi, alpha male, senses a threat, so he takes a note to look into it. He goes and tells Sheridan about it, having identified him as Matthew Stoner. In what is a moment of pure narrative laziness, Talia just happens to be walking by and hears the name and is like, oh, that's my ex-husband. What a coinkydink. Sheridan senses that she is somehow troubled by his presence, which you'd have to be like a rock to have not picked up on. But go Sheridan for making the effort to like follow up on it. Uh, Said credit is immediately spent, however, because he flatly bulldozes through the 84 signs she puts up that she's not comfortable talking about this. And he bullies her into disclosing more about their relationship. Why would she be uncomfortable talking about it? Oh, because it turns out he was also one of her first trainee trainers in the Psycor. You know, they have a word for it. 
when an authority figure begins a sexual relationship with a student or young person, which she was both of at the time. Uh, this is, I would like to note, the second time they've had this plot for Talia. Yeah. Yeah. It's super cool. Uh, they call that grooming. Uh, it's gross. And so it turns out he's not just her ex-husband. He's also an ex-abuser or an abuser. Oh, and the whole marriage thing was arranged. She agreed to it. But please hear the very exaggerated quotation marks I'm going to put around that. But then he left Psychor. So they were like, ah, Psych, you're not married. We need to breed you with someone else someday. So they just annulled it. And she never ended up learning how he got out. Uh, Caveman Garibaldi, meanwhile, feeling a threat to this female in his life that has no interest in him whatsoever, but he has apparently put his mark on uh, at some point in the past. He must have peed on her leg or something. Is is that what happened in the turbo lift? Yeah, right? There you go. Uh, Track Stoner to the Zocalo, where he's selling some weird shit to Mr. Hom from Star Trek. Uh, this is the doll that Mario buys and that will eventually tase Malari in the forehead um, and decides to show how big his police dick is and detain him for no reason whatsoever. All cops are bastards. Stoner is not remotely intimidated despite Garibaldi's threats and warnings to leave Talia alone and proves this by, as soon as he is released, immediately looking up Talia. He tells her that he got out of the core because he's not a telepath anymore. The core fucked up his telepathy with an experiment, and he can do it to her too. She can get out. She looks interested. After Stoner's statue turns out to be a booby trap, Garibaldi finally has a pretext under which to arrest him, so he's thrown in holding. Stoner remains completely nonplussed, could not look less, less concerned, which Garibaldi and Sheridan take to mean he must have some reason to believe they can't harm him or do anything to mess with him. While Garibaldi is verifying his story about where he got the toy, he talks to Lou, one of his lieutenants, who tells him that he brought Stoner a sandwich. And Garibaldi is concerned because it's not feeding time for the animals slash prisoners. And he says, well, why'd you do that? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I just kind of want to help the guy. And Garibaldi gets, you know, a wild hair up. Meanwhile, Talia has gone in to visit him and she's told him, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm not going to go with you to leave Psychor. And he whammies her and he's like, nah, I make the decisions now. You're coming with me. And she's like, yeah, I totally am. So that's cool. Just completely removing her, her agency and consent. As they're leaving, he, the Lou goes back in and he tells Lou to just open the door. Lou does. And as they're leaving, Garibaldi just beats the shit out of him, uh, which I'm sure he enjoyed. It turns out he's an empath. He can make people do whatever he wants just by making them like him. Uh, as soon as he's officially charged with a crime, Psychor swoops in and says, you have to let him go. Go figure. It turns out he never he never really left Psychor, just officially. He was sent to the station to bring Talia back to breed more empaths. Gross, gross, gross. Uh, the end. Fuck off. I hate this plot. Last, we save the fun part for last as a palate cleanser for that turd sandwich of a plot line. In an episode with some to enjoy. This is actually my favorite part. Uh, at the top of the episode, Ivanova is summoned urgently to Delenn's quarters, where she discovers a thoroughly disheveled and disgruntled Delenn, who has discovered that human hair is not compatible with Minbari bathing practices. We use a compound which strips away the outer layer of the epidermis. It is representative of rebirth and blah, 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 blah. 
She is embarrassed at the lack of dignity with which she finds this whole proceeding and more or less browbeats Ivanova into giving her a ladies spa day to, to fix the hair situation. This is a very good scene. Like the two of them are having a lot of fun playing this scene. It's so cute. It's very cute. There's a very good uh, scene in the middle where Lanier shows up with Delenn's invitation to Londo's Ascension Day party and finds Delenn with her hair all up in the curlers. And he is just fucking befuddled. He has no idea what the shit is going on. And he's trying to like not ask questions. He's trying to like not be confused. And he gets like all the way to the end. And then he's like pointing at it and then like touching his bone and like trying to like figure out what it would be like. It's very good. In the end, it like works and they have a little bonding moment. And you can see that this is a moment where like they go from commander and ambassador to like Susan and Delenn, which is very good. And then at the very end of the episode, um, they're in an elevator together and Delenn is thanking Susan for her help. And Ivanova says, if there's anything else, feel free to ask. And she's like, well, now that you mentioned it, what are these odd cramps I've been having? And Ivanova's face, realizing she's about to have to give the bird and the bees talk to a human Minbari hybrid, is extremely good. And that's, that's my summary. That's an episode. That, yeah. that sure is an episode that happened. Mm-hmm. So, okay, before we rip into this episode, first let's go through like why, I, why we get eye-rolling at Peter David. So I know Peter David primarily through comic books. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's been the writer on a couple runs of X Factor. He's pretty popular, and this is probably going to make like one nerd angry on the internet. He, he relies a little bit too much on racist and sexist tropes. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. He's a bit of a piece of shit. <laughs> I don't think anybody who watched this episode would be surprised that uh, sexist tropes was a uh, crutch for him. Yeah, yeah. Because we have our three plots. We have... Women troubles. Divorce game show. Yeah. Women be crazy. Divorce is hilarious. Sexual abuse. Huh? Cool. Are his three go-tos for this one. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the, like, how do we have, you know, a bonding moment with these two characters? Spa day! Yeah. Yeah. With that being said... I will say that in at least our A and C plot here, the acting does better stuff than what the script gives them because like the A and C plot are at least like enjoyable pieces of television to watch, even if they get eye rolly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, yeah. the A plot with Londo and his wives with lesser actors would be execrable, but they absolutely sell it. Yeah. All all of everyone in those, the the three wives, Londo, Jakar, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, the particularly Peter Jurassic and Jane Carr as Timov are absolutely brilliant. The, the two of them are just two sharp knives rattling against each other in this episode. And they're terrific. They have um, amazing on-screen chemistry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In in the Lurker's Guide write-up for this episode, it mentions that Peter Jurassic, this was one of Peter Jurassic's favorite episodes um, in the season to film because he had so much fun just snarking at at Jane Carr and uh, Lewis Nettleton, who played Daguerre. He just had like so much fun like rip, you know, being a butthole to the two of them in these scenes. 
I would I would have loved if we'd seen more of Timov over the over the show. Yeah. Oh, same. I don't think she ever comes back, but that no. would have been amazing. Yeah. Um, no, she's a she's so good. She's a great character, and Jane Carr is a tremendous actress. We'll talk about her in, in a second, but the the acting in this episode one hundred percent elevates it above the source material. And yeah. even even in the B plot, I will give the guy who plays Stoner acting props for being he he acts a character so slimy that like literally two frames in you just like want to reach through the television and throttle this oh guy. yeah you you hate him before, before he, he says gets, a word yeah he, fi- he before he finishes his first syllable the his physicality and like the look on his face is enough to make you want to slap the shit out of him Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's like, very it's like when Bester comes on the screen and you're just like, oh, oh, yeah, it's a jackass. <laughs> yeah. Everybody really brings it. Bill Mummy is really, really good in the brief scene Lanier has in this episode where he's like all befuddled at, by Delenn's hair care routine. Uh, it's a really nice moment of uh, physical acting that I think is just really great. It's a classic linear moment. It's one of those moments that I like remember every time I think of B5 and, and Lanier is he's pointing to the like thinking like massaging his bone crest and like trying to like imagine how that feels. It's it's very good. I love that moment. Something uh and Jakar, good lord. Um we I mean I think we covered. I feel yeah, like my summary yeah. pretty well covered how much I like this scene. But again, Andreas Kotzlis really can't do, go wrong uh, in this show to me, but yeah, his the little face he makes when when he's being frustrated by Londo, he does this like squinty headache face that is very good. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I have to say something about Jakar's acting too, or Andreas Kasulis's acting as Jakar, which is that, and and this is something I'll bounce back to as well in next episode. But you have to remember that he's doing all this acting under heavy prosthetics. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that he manages to have so much like facial mobility and emotion come through is amazing. And that, that would be very taxing. Yeah. Considering that he... When you consider the fact that of all the main cast, he's the only one that routinely is wearing this heavy prosthetics. And of the main cast, if you say Babylon 5, Gravitas, you're like, oh, Jakar. Like, yeah. He, he, under all that prosthetics, he still manages to deliver this enormous pr- performance is, is so compelling. Uh, let's talk about some of the unfun stuff. Let's start. I think you covered a lot of it, but yeah. yeah. There, there's two specific two specific things I want to call out. I, I really, I tried to get it all done in the summary so we didn't have to linger. Plus I had fun being a shit about this episode in the summary, as is my way. Uh, one, this episode is terribly written. I think, Anna, you pointed this out as well, that like, it just, it's just bad in a lot of ways, particularly the B plot. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of little bits that are just incredibly sloppy. Like yeah. Timov has this line of like I'm not going to participate in your sexual olympics, which like the delivery of that line is stellar. But 
why did the Centauri have an Olympic Games? Yeah. Or Delenn being like, no, no, Ivanova, we Mimbari, we do not sweat as humans do. At night, we secrete a fluid. And it's like, okay, so the whole purpose of perspiration is to cool the body. If you secrete something at night, that is not cooling you. Thus, it is not an analog to perspiration. Yeah. It just, like, (laughs) yeah. It's, it's it's very it's really lazy and that compounding with like um how Talia just like magically appears when it's convenient for her to do so. Yeah. Well and then my other beef with Talia is this episode the B plot of this episode is in theory about Talia. But you could replace Talia in this episode with a broom and a wig and nothing would change. Talia does nothing in this episode. She has no agency. She she has negative agency. Yeah, yeah. She shows Her agency up. Agency is actively taken away. Yeah, she shows up to exposit when necessary, and otherwise she is a token that is moved around the board by other people, sometimes against her will. But she never makes an. She yeah. She never makes an active choice in this whole episode, and it's. It sucks. There's no other way to put it. It just sucks. And the entire the entire thing is a plot to trick Talia into running away with it. Oh, running away with Stoner to make telepath babies. Empath just, babies. Oh, empath babies, right. Oh, it's dumb. It's I hate just it. it's yeah, no, this is this is uh It's a shitty up. It's a shitty, shitty story. Um and we get and we get this about face from Garibaldi in the last episode being like a decent human being and having like actual connection with Talia that's pretty good. Yeah. And we then immediately flip to this where he's just like a raging jackass and like he's really in bottom form here and not the fun way. Um <laughs> he's just a real piece of garbage in this episode. There's a particular part where he's really the worst in this episode. Uh, He treats Talia pretty awful almost all the time. And then this whole episode, he's just like a total caveman, chest-beating jackass. And then there's this scene where he's talking to the Len where he's like, there's this lady and I felt this instant connection to her. And it's just like, man, fuck off. Like, Why did you not talk to her like a human being for the last year and a half? Yeah. So... Yeah, I don't have anything else to say about this episode. Um, I would like to point out that the Ascension Day gift from Lanier was a deck of cards that are specially marked just the way that Londo asked. Yes, I forgot yeah. about that. That's very good. I forgot about that. And and I, I actually, so, you know, as a callback to the, when we talked about Parliament of Dreams, when we spent the entire episode talking about the music, I I actually really love the music at the Ascension party. Like it's kind of cheesy, but it it like is fun and like I think that might just be the Centauri musical aesthetic. Like I think maybe yeah. they just they they just have like a cheesy lowbrow musical s- sound to, to human ears. And and it, it works. Like it's fun yeah. to listen to, and it sets a good backdrop for yeah. the scene. Yeah. 
Before we talk about the faces in this episode, two weird notes about this episode. The, this was Babylon 5 season 2's Christmas episode, which is grim but... and weird. Uh, and originally, this episode would have aired uh, as episode 8. Uh, but the CGI on A Race Through Dark Places was very complex and slowed the episode down. And rather than delay, because the show was doing very, very well, uh, the network didn't want to delay. So they aired Soulmates ahead of A Race Through Dark Places. And that's wild. And I think that we should talk about that again. Yeah. After we talk about A Race Through Dark Places. Yeah. Because I think that that would drastically change some of the feel to this episode. Mm Mm-hmm. If you swap the order. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. The last thing I will do for this episode is I am going to dunk on uh, a spider in the webs, supposed most guests. You can't stars. beat Chairman Takagi. You cannot beat Chairman uh, Takagi. I'm gonna. Uh, so let's start, since we've already mentioned her, with Jane Carr, who plays Team Off. She has done an absolutely bananas amount of stuff. Uh, she's... If you've seen more recent stuff, you you might have seen her on Legends of Tomorrow. You've definitely heard her in a number of animated stuff. She was on Teen Titans, Teen Titans Go, Phineas and Ferb, Fairly Odd Parents, uh, Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. Like she's done voice work all over the place, video games, TV. She's also been in a, a bunch of stuff. She was on Curb Your Enthusiasm. She's got a great voice. Yeah. You know exactly that voice if once you've heard it. But where she was really sort of established herself back in the day and where she was best known bef- when this show aired was in the 70s, she was very well known. She had a bunch of different long-running uh, gigs on TV shows. She had done, uh, I think it was Beryl's Lot was the one that everybody, that, that, uh, JMS knew her from one of these shows that uh, JMS knew her from where she was pretty well known at the time. But yeah, she in this in the 90s, she had a she had a very good reputation. She was also a Shakespearean actor. Apparently she does a lot of stage. Next, we've got Carol Strickian or as Mr. I Holm. like to call him, Mr. Holm. This guy. Yeah, I'm sorry, but this guy squarely dunks out chairman. What's his name? He's been on. So he was Lurch in the in the 90s Adams Family movies. He was on both iterations of Twin Peaks. He's Mr. Home on TNG. And and here's my piece de resistance with him. He was in the Ewoks movie. So <laughs> you can take your die hard and shove it. Next, we have the guy who plays Stoner has the most bananas IMDB page. Uh, the fact that his photo on IMDb is a Bayformer is a fucking sin. Uh, <laughs> he has done an absolutely fucking insane amount of voice acting. He was Visago on Rebels, Mr. Freeze in Young Justice, about a hundred different video games and cartoons. Uh, he appeared in Supernatural, Sons of Anarchy, 24 Angel. Uh, he has stayed profoundly busy over the years. Um, he's been in goddamn everything. So if you don't recognize his face, you probably recognize his voice, but you probably recognize 
when he his his older face in some of this more recent stuff. So so I do have something that I want to bring up here because you mentioned IMDb photos, which is that if you go to IMDb and you look and you and you find in the Babylon Five cast listing uh, Lou Welch, who's played by David L. Crowley. Um, if you go to his page, you see the you see the shot. It's a, it's like a still from a Babylon Five episode, and his face is only like half in the frame, <laughs> which that is the most Lou Welch thing. Yeah. <laughs> the the actress who played Daguerre, meanwhile, uh, was also a very well known actress, Lois Nettleton. She was probably arguably even better known at the time. She had appeared on a number of different television shows. The Mary Tyler Moore Show. What is the one that I knew? I'm looking through her page right now. Murder, She Wrote? Murder, She Wrote. That was it. Yeah. My grandmother loved Murder, She Wrote. She was on Murder, She Wrote. Modern audiences, probably. She hasn't worked too much recently. So people these days, she was on Full House. Maybe you know her from Full House. I don't know. Yeah, pro- so, okay, so she died in 2008, so probably haven't seen her too much recently. She was a voice on the Spider-Man cartoon in 97, so there you go. Anyway. And she was a Maleficent, and yeah. she, she voiced Maleficent and some stuff. So, yeah, I, I believe that that squarely mic drops on your uh, most notable guest stars uh, over the guy that was in one movie that people might have seen. It's Die Hard, and it's Catwoman. I, I that that is my one one voice acting role as opposed to some of these guys have been. This guy was a bay former. He paid his dues. Give this guy some respect. <laughs> I will give him respect. I will just say that. No, none of y'all can top Mister Holm, though. I mean, I mean that figuratively and literally. Yeah, the man is like eight feet tall. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um. So, yeah, those are our two episodes for this week. One pretty good one. Uh, Next week, though, we're going to go to bat with two really good ones. So those are going to be episodes eight and nine of the season, uh, Race Through Dark Places and The Coming of Shadows. So join us next time. And until then, be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.